From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about uh, something you just heard in the news. And the tenants of a building in Vancouver, this is a building located around Yukon and West 8th Avenue, took some time earlier today to try and confront their landlord over what they say is a wrongful eviction. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Sydney Ball, organizer with the Vancouver Tenants Union. Sydney, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit more about what happened earlier today with the, the tenants of this specific building. Right. So at um, Yukon 8th, it's actually the landlord's office. Um, we were doing an action with a delegation of tenants there to deliver a letter to their landlord, which is D Corp Properties Limited. Um, and the letter just simply stated that they needed to drop the eviction of one of their low income neighbors. Uh, D Corp has been running multiple Airbnbs out of the building. It's only a small 12 unit building. And so the majority of tenants had signed on to a letter that just simply stated, drop the eviction. We don't have a need for a live-in caretaker, we'd much prefer for our neighbor to keep their home. And so was that the reason given as to why this particular tenant was being evicted, that the landlord or the the manager wanted to bring in a live-in caregiver? Yeah, that's the reason that they're giving. It's a landlord use of property, which we're seeing a lot more of those evictions currently. Um, But uh, the reason is pretty thin, considering that there's two Airbnbs running out of the building and two units that have actually emptied since the eviction notice has been given. Um, And uh, currently, the Airbnbs in the building are um, going for a similar unit of over $5,000. So they can actually, if they were going to rent an Airbnb, make about five times the profit if they were to uh, evict Kier from his home. And how long has the tenant lived there? The tenant has lived there for 16 years. They are actually the longest-term tenant in the building, meaning that they are paying the least amount of rent, which is exactly what we see with landlord use of property, is typically they are targeting low-income tenants and the people that have stuck around in the building the longest. Uh, Previously, four years ago, there was a rent eviction in the building of all but two units. So Kier is the only person that has lived there and uh, kind of stayed there during that rent eviction. Wow, 16 years. That's a, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and he's also uh, currently on disability assistance, so um, really uh, the idea that he might be evicted from his home could mean potential homelessness for him. Uh, so what would happen then, or, or has the avenue been taken as far as trying to go to, to the tenancy board or, or uh, to the powers that be to, to make the argument that you just made, saying, well, there are actually other vacant units in this building, that if the reason is for a live-in caregiver, that that could be a solution, that this eviction doesn't need to go ahead, that it's not necessary? Yes, we have um, gone to the RTB, so that hearing is still coming up. It hasn't happened yet. However, um, the lender has been giving a lot of notice with that letter originally sent to them about a month ago um, for them to drop the eviction. They've been made aware uh, that we know about the Airbnb units in the building, so there's no reason that they can't drop the eviction early um, and not have this hanging over his head for a total of three months. And is that how long is it? Because uh, I always thought it was two months, but is that how the, the notice that was given to this tenant as far as this is how long you have until we are going to need to take this suite over for, for our own personal use? No, when you file out the RTB, um, they can't evict you before that hearing actually okay. takes place. So, yeah. All right. So how is the tenant doing at this point? That's got to be stressful. 
Yeah, it's incredibly stressful. I think he's feeling a lot better that there's been support from the building and also all the supporters that gathered there this morning um, to see his speech, uh, which he gave an amazing one. Um, So I think that's actually really part of it is just not feeling alone when this kind of thing happens because a lot of people just pick up and leave. They don't think they have any options. Um, But we're going to be experiencing more and more of this, especially with the Broadway plan coming up. So um, I really encourage everybody to talk to their neighbors and their buildings, get to know one another because that's the best defense that you have. And just so I'm clear on this too, because when I looked at the address, so the address of 8th and Yukon, is that that's the address of the owner, not the address of the actual uh, apartment in question? Correct, correct. The address of the apartment in question is 2325 Glen Drive. Um, and the landlord actually has multiple buildings that they're renting out Airbnbs on. If you follow through the uh, man, Jordan, who is the host on Airbnb, he runs a property management company in Southcard Arton that has over 150 rentals. And we found three buildings in Mount Pleasant that D Corp owns with about 18 units of Airbnb properties on them. Hmm. I, I'm, I was curious, you mentioned the Broadway plan as well, because I was thinking, so the, the landlord's building is actually part or would be caught up, I believe, in the, the Broadway plan, but not the building in question. Well, actually, the building has just recently been for sale. It's just been taken off the market, listed as sold, but we do not know if there are new owners or who they are yet. Um, so one of the other also like possible um, incentives for getting care out of his home, besides just an increase in um, rental price, is um, the tenant protections under the Broadway plan. I think um, landlords are looking to skirt around those protections and offering to take out the tenants paying the least amount of money before the development process kicks off. So on the sale brochure for this building, we saw clearly it said Broadway plan up zoning. You can build up to six stories or 20 stories if you um, also acquire the site next to it. Um, And I think uh, you'd be able to skirt around those tenant protections if you just kick the lowest income tenants out of the homes first. Uh, so what do you do next? Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the hearing coming up uh, and um, that taking that avenue. Uh, what do you do next? So next, I mean, we're just asking for D-Corp to drop the eviction. I think that they have uh, the opportunity clearly to do the right thing, to show up at the hearing and just say, you know what, we're going to drop this. Um, previously, the agent of the landlord, which is the person that was going to be handling the actual hearing, uh, stated in an email that we were CC'd on that said that he recommended that they drop the eviction, if not offer him $18,000 for a buyout, um, and that he wouldn't have taken the, the case on if he knew there was Airbnbs in the building. So we know that that they're thinking about it for sure. All right. We will continue uh, to stay tuned and see what happens next with this. Sydney, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. Time to look a little deeper into what is happening in the United States and the information about Donald Trump's four indictments, as well, the criminal charges. I just want to find 11,780 votes. That was from the phone call in 2021, a phone call that started one of the investigations. Joining us now to talk more about this is Thane Rosenbaum, a CBS legal analyst. Thane, thank you so much for being with us. Anytime for you, Jill, you know that. <laughs> well, it's uh, I know yesterday things uh, just uh, everywhere you looked, it was the breaking news and the updates about what was happening with Donald Trump. So what are your thoughts about where we are now with these indictments and again with these criminal charges? Well, Jill, this case is very similar to the one that was brought in federal court a week ago uh, in Washington, D.C. 
So one person, you could ask, well, then why do they bring this one? Well, because this is brought under state charges as opposed to federal charges. And there are some people who would say uh, under federal law, if Donald Trump were to uh, be reelected to office, he could pardon himself. But because this is under state Georgia law, he could not pardon himself, nor could he instruct the Justice Department to leave him alone. The Justice Department has nothing to do with the state of Georgia. So that's one reason other than that. And, you know, that's only if you're prosecuting a case, if you're investigating for two years, you're likely to bring it. And that's what happened last night. Now that he's been indicted, though, in four separate criminal cases, how does that or does that change anything? Jill, I don't have the slightest idea. I, you know, none of us have a you know, I'll ask you. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, the Florida case has been scheduled for trial for May 11th. The D.C. case, which I was just mentioning, they're asking for it to be January 2nd. Uh, there's still the one in New York that I think they've scheduled for the spring. Uh, and now you've got the one in Georgia. And the prosecuting attorney said she's looking for a speedy trial. I don't know how it could be speedy. She indicted not just President Trump, but 18 other co-conspirators, right? 18, that's 19 people. Let's just say all 19 get two lawyers. You can't even fit all those people in one courtroom, right? And that's a lot. And also she's charging 41 counts in the indictment, 160 acts. This would take forever to, to ultimately unwind. And that there's no doubt the election would be long over by the time it got through. But she's determined to push it forward. I don't know whether this is part of a broader strategy to say, let us just tie up Donald Trump from one courtroom to the next, can't campaign. All he does is go from Atlanta to New York to Washington to Miami, back and forth, back and forth, in and out of courtrooms, just trying to defend himself. And at the same time, uh, trying to uh, get the Republican nomination again and try and uh, run for president again. Do you think that there is a way? I mean, can this all happen at the same time? Jill, you know, I, I'm sure Canadians would be shocked to hear this. With every new indictment, his polling numbers go up. So when you say and to gain the Republican con- nomination, I say, Jill, I think that's a lot. You know, if the more indictments that show up, then he's raising more money off of each of these indictments. His polling numbers go up. Um, and and so I don't know. I, I, that's why I'm saying it's, it's, it, it raises an interesting question whether the will of the American people might end up being that they're so disgusted by all the prosecutions that others join along with other core supporters of Donald Trump and elect a man that's under criminal indictment or has been prosecuted or has been convicted of a crime. By the way, Jill, there's nothing in our Constitution that prevents an American president from having been a felon or even presently been convicted. In fact, in Georgia, since he can't pardon himself, I hate to say this, it's possible he could govern from jail. If that's the will of the American people, that's what might happen. That's democracy. Wow, which is it's pretty uh, amazing to, to even think of that, that that's possible. But uh, I guess we shouldn't really be surprised by anything at this point. He is, he is uh, you know, outplayed the competition for years, right? No one expected him eight years ago uh, to get the nomination. Uh, no one thought he could beat Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, he's very hard to count out. And he does have a sh- a stunningly loyal following who for them all of these indictments are baked in they don't care it doesn't matter to them they love the guy 
They don't. They say he's a flawed human being. We don't think he's a criminal. We get it. He's negligent. He's reckless. He's undisciplined. He's impulsive. He's all those things, but he's our guy. And nothing like this has ever happened in America before to have such a level of populist uh, uh, support uh, by core a group of people. Again, not the coastal elite, the interior. You guys are out in Vancouver. You're for Canada. You're what we would call the coastal elite. Imagine if someone who in the center of Canada was just adored like Donald Trump and in Toronto and in Vancouver despised. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting way of, of putting it, definitely, to compare it to, to Canadian politics. Uh, I'm curious, Thane, if you can, from from then putting kind of popularity aside and uh, the, the more kind of obscure parts of this, if we look at the different indictments and going back, so in Manhattan, the probe over hush money, and that was over uh, the, the hush money payment to, to Stormy Daniels. If we compare that to what these charges are, or even compared to the Mar-a-Lago, the documents case. If we now compare that to what the indictment is, what the charges are connected to Georgia, is one more serious than the other? Should, by from a legal standpoint, is one uh, does one carry more weight than the others? Well, again, if you don't want to be in jail, this is a disaster because there are mandatory minimums here, and the RICO charges can land a person in jail for twenty years, and that's not necessarily true of some of the other cases. I would also say some of the other cases have a much more creative reading of criminal statutes. They might not actually apply to the facts that are being pled in these criminal indictments. This case is like down, it's in the middle, it's right there. These are state uh, election interference, voting violations, things that are crimes against the election process of Georgia. So these are actual crimes that are that are that are are consistent in a way with the facts that are being pled. The Washington D.C. case, for instance, is a very good example of one that is not. The one in Mar-a-Lago, very similar, right? Uh, they're using the Espionage Act in Mar-a-Lago in that case against a man who never was in contact with anyone foreign, no foreign agent. He wasn't selling the documents. He didn't destroy the documents. He just retained them and wouldn't give them back. Right. That's not how the espionage has usually been used. Right. So that's why I'm saying this case in Georgia is very specific. They're saying these are various charges related to election interference. These are the things that these 19 people did that interfered with the Georgia election. In some ways, this is a more troubling case for Donald Trump. The other case in Mar-a-Lago, not the espionage piece, but the piece about obstruction of justice. Because when they asked for the documents back, he was sort of playing three-card Monty and, you know, moving them from closets to sock drawers. That, to me, is also he's vulnerable. But some of the other cases, like you said, in New York, that just isn't really a crime. <laughs> you know, they just invented something that the hush money payment represented a campaign uh, pro- pledge to his campaign, a donation of his campaign. That I don't think would ever hold up. Right. And, and I would think, too, even if you're a fan or not a fan as a, an American, uh, you would probably, I would think, be more troubled by this indictment that's saying uh, that he and his co-defendants, the, the, the charges that they attempted to reverse the electoral loss, that they made false statements, uh, they created fake electoral college documents. I mean, those those seem like much more serious crimes, don't they? Jill, we're buddies. I don't want to drive you crazy, but I will tell you that there are defenses. Be be prepared. 
you're going to hear defenses to everything you just said, which is to say there's a difference between overturning an election and challenging an election. And under the First Amendment, we have a right to engage in political advocacy. This case, the, the election in four battleground states were razor-thin margins, and even the quote about finding 11,700 votes, his lawyers are going to say, it's, I didn't say that we should falsify 11,700 votes. I would say, I bet you there is 11,700 votes that in a razor-tight election can be found. And you're going to hear this argument again and again. What you claim, what they'll say, what the prosecution claims is efforts to overturn the election is what we claim is efforts to challenge the election, which is democratic, it's constitutional, it's guaranteed, and it's ultimately American. You're going to hear that. And it's going to drive some people crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Thane, you kind of laid out the timeline right off the top. But if these all go ahead on those dates, like you said, and and some of the dates that we don't even know at this point, I mean, are we in this for for uh, years that this is going to make it through various courts and various stages? or, Or is it too early to even know what the timeline might look like? I just can't believe any one of these cases, if they don't get dismissed, could actually go to trial and get concluded before the end of the election. Not one. I don't see how. Not in this country. It moves too slow. There are too many pretrial motions that will be. There's 19 people here, right? They're all going to raise all kinds of defenses, even in the pretrial era, to say, I shouldn't be in this case. You should be separate from these cats, these defendants. There are going to be people that say, we can't get a fair trial in Georgia. These motions are going to have to be worked through. So then the question could be, well, maybe the strategy all along was it doesn't make a difference if he gets convicted before or after. The key is to just tar him as a criminal and keep him in a courthouse because we're never really going to be able to resolve this before the end of the election. Well, we will stay tuned. It certainly is an interesting one that we are following along here. Thane, as always, thank you so much for joining us and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jill. We started the show today talking about a protest, a confrontation, if you will. It was a group, including the tenant, the Vancouver Tenants Union, taking on or trying to confront a landlord, the owner of a building. The group says that one of the tenants is being illegally evicted with the landlord saying they are bringing in a live-in caretaker. But as you heard, if you were listening right off the top of the show, the group also claims there are many Airbnb units in that building and other empty suites. So this suite is not actually needed. Well, that kind of ties into what we're talking about now. This is a group of nonprofit and private sectors joining force in attempting to address Canada's rental housing crisis. So what could potentially be done to create millions of new affordable and market purpose-built rental units in the next few years? My next guest is Michael Brooks, CEO of RealPAC, that is Canada's National Leadership Association. It represents more than 130 of Canada's largest commercial and residential real estate companies. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so this is a, this was a roundtable coming together, a roundtable taking a look at what's happening with the rental housing crisis. What were some of the takeaways or what did the group come up with, with even trying to deal with this and get more rentals available to people? Yeah, this starts at the uh, situation of a supply deficit coast to coast. Um, 
and uh, the need to start talking, the need to start talking about comprehensive solutions that engage all three levels of government. We have a fall economic statement coming this fall from the federal government, and we just thought it was opportune time to solve the problem for them and develop a blueprint for the next seven years. CMHC says we need we need to have 5.8 million new units of housing before 2030. And we figure that 2 million of those need to be purpose-built rental. That's enormous challenge for all of Canada, given that only 570,000 units of rental housing have been built in the last 30 years. So we need to triple our output to hit that target. Did the roundtable look at the role of the federal government? Because there have been many calls lately of the federal government getting back into the housing market, being more involved and not leaving it up to provincial governments and to civic governments. Absolutely. They've they've been largely absent from, let's call it the social housing space um, since the 1980s. Uh, maybe the end of 1980 was at the end of it. And social housing has rapidly diminished in terms of the number of doing it, mostly at the provincial and local level. So, yeah, that's part of it. It's a pretty comprehensive plan. But at the bottom end, we need to have a lot more social housing or integrate it into other housing type of projects. We need to prevent the the increase in homelessness in this country. That was our partner uh, in one of the three partners in producing this report. We want to stop the growth of homelessness and try to keep people in their apartments or in new apartments as soon as we can. Hmm. And uh, it sounds like a very uh, good plan and a good goal, but uh, apart from what you've mentioned, how do you do that? Yeah, you need to increase supply uh, quickly, and you need to have it at all price points, uh, government, housing. So we know that Minister Eby in British Columbia has a $500 million plan to buy and maintain affordability of some older buildings. I think that's great. We need more nonprofits building and owning, and we need more market supply uh, by private developers. Um, And you, Jill, probably know, as well as I do, that it takes some time to get approvals through local councils. Uh, definitely. And we have seen uh, provincial governments uh, here in B.C. Uh, kind of step in and say, look, th- this is not acceptable. You can't be taking this long to approve projects. And uh, there's a local council, at least in Vancouver, that was part of the platform they ran on saying we're going to speed all of that up. How important or, or does this look at how big of a difference it could make by expediting, by speeding up those development permits, those approvals? Yeah, that's really part of it. It's very important. Uh, but when you think of the challenge of tripling our housing production we, and the fact that we're losing labor, we're losing skilled labor, a lot of whom are boomers who are upset to retire. Um, we're not bringing in enough skilled laborers to backfill. So we need to change the way we build. We need a lot more innovation uh, in the way we build to hit this supply goal. And when you say innovation, do you mean automation or or what needs to change then if we're losing all of this labor and there simply isn't the labor there to build? Well, I think the obvious uh, initial response is panelization, which uh, constructs building panels in a warehouse uh, or manufacturing facility, ships them to the site 
and they're assembled on site. The benefit of that is it requires uh, a lot less labor, and the labor that you do have, most of those are working indoors. So you don't have rain days, uh, for example, where no activity can take place because, you know, the mud's ankle deep. Um, so that's one idea, the use of cross-laminated timber, um, another idea. So those, both of those contribute to speed. And what does something like that do, or, or does, I don't know if this roundtable looked at this, but what does something like that, those, those kinds of changes, how does that impact price? Um, well, it's not cheaper. Uh, it's not cheaper to do panelization, but it's faster. Uh, and it's a little more efficient because, as I mentioned, you don't have those those rained-out days on site, and you don't have the staging issues so much, uh, closing city streets and the like. So that's the prevailing wisdom on panelization. Not much in the way of cost savings, but speed is enhanced and efficiency is enhanced. Uh, some of the numbers that came from this roundtable as well, and you touched on, on some of these numbers, but it, they seem a bit daunting. Uh, the age of the current purpose-built rental stock, that it's more than 40 years old, and that, uh, like you said, I think 5.8 million homes must be built in the next seven years, and, and a lot of those need to be purpose-built rental. How do you entice developers, companies to build purpose-built rental if it's not as lucrative as other types of housing? Jill, that's, that is exactly a problem on the private market side. We're hearing coast to coast that uh, a lot of housing developments just don't pencil out anymore. In other words, it's not profitable to proceed. So uh, a lot of people are not proceeding with their projects. Uh, some of that is high interest rates. Rent rates have gone from the threes to the sevens. If you're a builder, if you can get financing, even uh, we know the CMHC has a huge backlog of approvals for mortgage insurance under their various programs of up to a year. So uh, that's a problem. We know that the builders uh, and the owners, for that matter, have a lot of increased cost pressure. Insurance is up. Wages are up. Material costs are up. Um, so there's a lot of price push as well on new construction. And, and you've touched on something there as well, and that we've even heard of with with interest rates going up and those those increases. Uh, there have been cases of developers simply walking away or projects stalling because they can't continue with that kind of economic that kind of market. Yeah, so we need to literally dig into those pro formas and see what tweaks we can make uh, to make that project viable again. Can we get? low interest financing could we get financing down in the threes again from a level of government can we um have some tax tweaks that make it more profitable for the private sector to get engaged in the u.s they have something called the low-income housing tax credit uh which gives a tax credit if you're developing affordable deeply affordable housing could we try that could we accelerate capital cost allowance i mean there are a number of tools most of which are federal that might get things going if um, we could convince the federal government that, you know what, this is a bit of a crisis, so let's do everything. I under, I'm looking at the proposals as well, in addition to what you've said, and, and that uh, when you talked about the, the, cop, the capital cost allowance provisions, uh, one of the other calls is to eliminate the GST or the HST on those purpose-built rentals uh, to incentivize that construction. How likely is it, do you think, something like that could happen? Well, there's a cost. Um, 
we've seen a parliamentary budget office report to say that the revenue to the feds from that is around $350 million a year. That's not much. Some people call it trivial in terms of the federal budget of $460 billion, but it's really important to get purpose-built rental going. That's a huge check you've got to write as soon as you've finished construction to the Canada Revenue Agency. There's no value add from the federal government. It's just a tax and taxes um, now exceed 30% of the cost of rental apartment units. So uh, it's something very important to eliminate, and it might spur construction, as I meant. It might, it might make non-viable projects viable. Well, it's an interesting list of recommendations and a to-do list for the federal and other levels of government. Michael, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Terrific. Thanks, Jill. We have been talking about inflation with Statistics Canada putting out some new numbers when it comes to inflation. You heard in the news mortgages leading to some of the inflation costs, the higher costs of things, but also some new information on the cost of food. Food prices at grocery stores were up 8.5% in July, but are growing at a slower rate than the 9.1% seen in June. Well, let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. It, it started off, it doesn't sound like great news that it's north of 8%, but a little bit less than we've seen before. What are we seeing with food prices right now? Well, when you look at uh, month-to-month changes, things are are smoothing. Uh, things are more manageable, I guess, uh, compared to just a few months ago. And uh, I think we, we could feel comforted by, by what we saw this morning. Uh, obviously, uh, I mean, the food inflation rate is still quite high, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, we still have uh, the second lowest food inflation rate in, in the entire G7. Only the Americans have a lower uh, food inflation rate, which means that really we're dealing with a global phenomenon. But across the world, across the world, the food, infla- food inflation rates are are actually dropping. And so, uh, so I I, I I tend to move away from alarmist messages out there. Uh, and I would start with the FAO <laughs> at the UN. They're very alarmist and. Uh, you know, India just halted uh, exports for rice uh, a month ago. Uh, the Russian-Turkish grain deal ended. We thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to relive what we, we went through last year. Nothing. I mean, markets are really calm, and that's reassuring for Canadians. Hmm. And is it is it the price of gas as well and, and the other factors that we do see that are having a big impact on the food prices that we then see in the grocery store? Well, the price of gas is certainly an issue. If you look at uh, all provinces around the country, uh, provinces uh, which really rely a lot on transportation to get fed uh, were were impacted uh, in July. And um, so PI is certainly one. Um, Quebec actually is another. Uh, Quebec actually has the, the highest food inflation rate in the country. And I think that's due to the fact that the... Um, that the harvest uh, season uh, in uh, in Quebec has been uh, very challenging, and so weather-wise, uh, it's been very different than uh, when you guys are in BC. 
Hmm. And so when we look at that and the prices, we're still seeing that 8.5% increase. But but I know we always talk about the different foods and, and where we might see the, the smaller increases or in some cases, even the decreases. Where are we seeing uh, if people are looking to, to try and make their dollars stretch? Where are we seeing perhaps not as much inflation? Fruits. Actually, fruits was the big winner this month. Uh, Fruit prices actually dropped nationally (laughs) last month. Yeah, and along with fish and seafood. So if you like fish and seafood, you should be pleased with numbers that that you saw today. Uh, Meat lovers, not so much, especially beef. Uh, Beef is pushing uh, food inflation higher, uh, along with uh, bakery goods uh, as well. But other than that... I would say that most categories are under control. Um, there's more control out there than, say, six months ago. Hmm, well, that is that is good news. Interesting when you talk about fruits and the, the fresh fruit prices then uh, seeing a decline, because I, I saw this story the other day as well, that the orange the orange shortage is, is could potentially mean that we're going to see a much uh, bigger cost or more cost for orange juice in the coming months. Is is oranges or are oranges kind of a one-off or because of of crops and what we've seen happen there that we we wouldn't potentially put them in with with the rest of the fresh fruit? Actually, if you look at the data, oranges are an exception. (laughs) Yeah, orange prices have actually gone up, uh, orange juice. But here's the thing. uh, Compared to 30 years ago, very few people actually drink orange juice on a regular basis. Uh, There's so many substitutes out there, so very few people were affected by that. Hmm. And I guess even if you were somebody that drank orange juice on a regular basis, if you were looking to save a bit of money, it might be time to try one of those other choices instead. Exactly. Very few products out there only have orange juice. If you look around, there are several products now mixing orange juice with something else. So uh, that's why you always want to take some data with a grain of salt, depending on what people are actually buying. What Statistics Canada is telling you and what is actually going on and how you're impacted by inflation is very different. In that, I would imagine too, because stores also do they not have to move product if one particular product's not moving? I mean, it's either make it at a price point where people are going to buy it, or as the grocer, you're going you're going to be throwing it away, aren't you? Exactly. So, uh, and grocers really are on top of things when it comes to understanding uh, the market overall. Uh, and again, I know a lot of people think, well, food prices are higher because some companies are taking advantage of, of consumers. Not so. Go back to quarterly results. You'll see uh, there's one exception right now, I would say, that would be Metro, but you don't have any Metro stores in B.C. Uh, Metro Metro's uh, uh, same-store food sales year-to-year are up 9.5%. That's a bit of a red flag because that's it's the only – it's the only grocer in the country with uh, same same store food su- food sales higher than the actual food inflation rate. So, but other than that, uh, like Save On Foods, Loblaw, Sobe's, uh, Safeway, the big players uh, in your neck of the woods, um, same store sales are actually all below food inflation. Hmm. It, because it is something that, that people do like to blame uh, the the CEOs and blame the big food, uh, the food, uh, the grocers and say that uh, perhaps more competition is needed or we could we could do other things like that to bring the price down. Uh, do you think that is still worth looking at, though? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in light of some of the things that are going on, uh, the bread uh, scandal investigation is still going on after eight years. That's not done. Recently, we just saw uh, Grupo Bimbo, which owns Canada Bread, admits uh, guilt paying a $50 million fine. You remember that? Mm-hmm. That was a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, uh, with that admission uh, came also the link between uh, the bread scandal and Maple Leaf Foods, a big player in meat products. So there are speculations out there uh, suggesting that perhaps meat prices could have been fixed for a while. So, so on, on the one hand, are grocers taking advantage of the inflation wave? Not so much, but... There are there is evidence out there showing that perhaps there is there is a price fixing culture problem in the industry. And, and what do you mean by that? That that one grocer it might not be collusion, but a grocer might see the price at another grocer and and bump up their price based on that. Oh, I, I am talking about collusion. Oh. If you go back a couple of months ago in the Globe and Mail, there was an email written by Michael McCain himself, the CEO of Maple Leaf Foods, suggesting that perhaps, perhaps. Uh, we could we could actually work on prices for meat products as well. When he was actually owning, uh, when he was owning Canada Bread, and that email was written back in 2008, 2009. And there's the blackout period in the fall, and I could go on and on and on. But there are there are there there, there are practices in industry that leads to price fixing, but all of that. Uh, all of these things have been normalized over the years. People think it's actually normal to issue blackout periods, and that's a problem. Hmm. So, so what do you think then would be part of the solution? A code of conduct, for one, uh, and secondly, a stronger, much, much more, uh, much forceful uh, competition bureau. Uh, and actually, in fact, we're meeting with the competition bureau later this month to uh, discuss the issue of, of meat prices. And uh, I actually do think that Canadians deserve a much stronger uh, competition bureau. In the U.S., you collude, you go to jail. In Canada, you receive immunity. Yeah, and uh, hand out some gift cards to your customers and hope that that's exactly. enough to make it go away. Exactly. Exactly. So so on the one hand, like, you have to look at the data when it comes to food prices. But on the other hand, there is a culture that, that is somewhat troubling. Well, I'm glad that you are uh, talking about this and doing more, and we will hopefully talk to you about uh, the Competition Bureau and what happens next. Sylvain, thank you so much, as always, for joining us today. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show, live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.